Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. Beyond being Black History Month, February is also American Heart Month. Therefore, during this podcast, we'll discuss the leading cause of death in this country, heart disease, with a particular focus on women's heart health. With me to discuss the topic is Dr. Susan Bennett. Welcome, Susan. Thank you. Before I introduce Dr. Bennett, some context. One of three adults, or 80 million people, have some form of cardiovascular disease or other blood vessel diseases. Heart disease accounts for 600,000 deaths in this country, or one in every four per year. Annually, about 935,000 Americans have a heart attack. One-third of these episodes are reoccurrences. Again, it's the leading cause of death of all Americans, men and women, less Asian and some indigenous populations. Premature death from heart disease is more than twice or double the rate for men compared to women and more than double the rate for African Americans compared to whites. Heart disease is most prevalent in the South. Not surprising, the South is also where there are the highest occurrences of stroke. Heart disease and stroke combined account for approximately $450 billion in healthcare expenditures and lost productivity calculated for 2010. For women, only 50% of women recognize heart disease as their number one killer. Additionally, almost two-thirds of women who die suddenly of a coronary heart disease had no previous symptoms. I'll note lastly, cardiac rehabilitation services are vastly underused despite the clear benefits thereof. Of eligible patients for cardiac rehab, it's estimated only 14 to 25% of heart attack survivors and 31% of bypass surgery patients participate in cardiac rehab programs. Now allow me to introduce Dr. Bennett. Dr. Bennett is a cardiologist, the clinical director of the Women's Heart Center at the George Washington University Hospital, and the co-director of the Women's Heart Program at the MedStar Heart Institute. Previously, Dr. Bennett was an assistant professor in the Division of Cardiology at the University of Maryland. Dr. Bennett is on the Scientific Advisory Board of Women Heart, the National Coalition of Women and Heart Disease. She served as the chair for the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute's Advisory Panel on Women and Heart Disease. She is a past president of the Greater Area, Washington Area, American Heart Association. She's a national spokesperson for the American Heart Association and is the author of numerous clinical publications. Finally, Dr. Bennett earned her MD degree from the Eastern Virginia Medical School. So with all that as background, let's begin. Uh, Dr. Bennett, beyond my introductory comments, what would you add about the prevalence of cardiovascular disease, particularly amongst women? Well, we had our year of equality in 1984. And at that year, more American women started dying of heart disease than American men when you add it all up, when you added up all the mortality. Um, we've come a long way, though. Uh, the women in heart disease movement is now at least moderately mature. It's been going on for over 10 years now, and there has been progress, for sure. 
Uh, we've had cardiovascular death rates for women come down, not as much as for men, but it's come down about 25% compared to 10 plus years ago, so we've made some progress. And I, I thank you very much for having me on this program. I, I was a co-director of the Women's Heart Program at GW for a number of years until 2011, and now I'm happy to be the consulting cardiologist at MedStar Heart Institute. So thank you again for having me. Sure. Um, I should say, per your point, it is the case that since the 1960s, um, heart uh, disease mortality has decreased. So there is an upside to this. We are doing better, actually, overall. Let me ask you then next, let's go to uh, primary prevention or preventative me measures. What should people know? What should people do? I think some of my patients feel... Um a little fatalistic, like the, the proverbial horses come out of the barn already when they come in. They've had diabetes for a long time. Uh, they're overweight. They haven't exercised. And they really feel like it's inevitable that something bad is going to happen. That is absolutely the opposite message. Uh, when we are able to control risk factors, good blood pressure control, good diabetes control, uh, cholesterol issues, not smoking, healthy lifestyle, we would be able to reduce heart attacks, strokes, bypass surgery, angioplasty by over 82%. So an incredible reduction, obviously, in the human cost if we were able to do that, and not to mention the cost of health care. Yet, if we look at women, who is that healthy, who has all their healthy lifestyles and their ducks in a row, so to speak, mm -hmm. it's about 3 to 5% of women. So we have a lot of room to go in primary prevention. And, you know, I think that prevention is key, whether the, the patient has never had an event or, as I tell my patients who have come out of the hospital with a stent or bypass surgery or after a heart attack, prevention is still crucial because if you've had an event, if you've had heart disease, you're that much more likely to have another event. And for women, the death rates after a heart attack in the years ensuing are far harder than they are for our male colleagues of the same age. What explains, for my opening comment, what explains the fact that women, despite the fact having as many heart attacks as men since 1984, as you know, what explains the fact that there's this absence of, of, of awareness uh, as it relates to heart disease being the number one killer for women? Well, since, since 1984, there have actually been more cardiovascular-related deaths uh, compared to men. Men actually have more heart attacks, per se, but deaths are uh, higher in women as far as numbers. What accounts for it? What's the difference? Um, part of it has been explained by the fact that we are an older population as women. We live longer. We've got to die of something. As my male cardiology colleagues will often say, hey, you live longer than us. Stop complaining so you have a stroke or a heart attack at the end. Some of it is due to that. Um, some of it is due to, to things that we, we don't know about. We suspect in large part that part of it has been due to sort of this uh, lack of awareness among the medical care community. So when a woman comes in with chest pain, they might think it's first reflux or something like that and not even check an EKG. That, I think, has improved a lot over the last 10 years. But what we still find out is that, for instance, a woman comes in with a heart attack and gets a stent, she is less likely to be placed on those life-saving medications like aspirin and beta blockers than the male colleagues. So we're still not quite up to speed. Also, uh, these interventions, when they're done, are riskier for women than they are for men. Now, women on, tend to be older on average when they have their bypass or their, their stent. 
uh, and a lot of the complications ensue from age. But for instance, women have a lot more bleeding problems with procedures. Uh, that can re- result in some serious debilitation or even death. Let me ask you, relative to prevention, and I believe, uh, well, let's start with uh, what are called cardioprotective drugs. Now, they've uh, contributed greatly to uh, prevention. Can you discuss the importance of those? Well, probably the best cardioprotective uh, assets that we have are legs and our hands. Okay, <laughs> Legs for activity and walking and running, hands for not putting too much food in our mouth or not the right kind of food. That's by far the biggest asset. So lifestyle aside, um, aspirin can be preventive for men and women. Uh, it's a little, that's where there's an important gender difference in that aspirin for most middle-aged or even men over the age of 40 is found to be effective for preventing first heart attack and stroke. For women, that cut point is 65 years of age where there seems to be more of a clear-cut benefit. And the reason why it's not as beneficial for women under that age is that women have a higher risk of bleeding and that offsets the potential benefit. That being said, any woman that's at high risk, you know, a woman that's had a heart attack or a stent, they should be on aspirin. And we, I would be remiss if we didn't mention statins, so please discuss. Cholesterol, you know, there are millions of people in the United States that have high cholesterol issues. Uh, statins have been the mainstay of therapy for quite a while. There's a lot of controversy with statins in women. Uh, there are some leading uh, cardiologists who say there's absolutely no evidence that we should be using statins in women to prevent the first heart attack and stroke. But in my opinion, if you look closely okay, at the data and you look closely at those women that have high levels of cholesterol or other risk who have not yet had a heart attack or stroke, they really do benefit. Now, the benefit's not necessarily in reducing death. That's a pretty high bar for any medication. But it will reduce heart attacks and strokes, need for hospitalization for angina, etc., which are very, very costly in terms of dollars, but, of course, obviously very costly in terms of the human component. Let's go then, thank you, let's go then to um, beyond primary prevention to uh, Women present with symptomology, so it's the beginning to exhibit the disease symptoms. There's been much discussion about how women's symptoms can vary or differ than men's symptoms, and this partly contributes to the problem in treating women patients. Let's talk about that. Well, I'd say women, we're always a little more challenging. Um, And women often present with the same symptoms as men do, pressure, tightness in the chest or back. Women will often not mention that as the first symptom that they might be experiencing. They may say, I feel I can't catch a full breath. Um, I feel like I'm extraordinarily tired. Uh, And so it can be a little different and a little more subtle. But when you see a woman, even a younger woman, because if you miss a heart attack in a woman who's 45, they are already at high risk compared to men the same age for having a bad outcome. You know, we need to do the right thing. And I think we're trying to get that education across, especially to first-line providers in emergency rooms, that, you know, getting an EKG and getting this very sensitive blood work called cardiac enzymes really is a good first step in making that determination. But there's not so much research that's available as to the presenting symptoms, believe it or not. Uh, There was a study that came out in 2005 that asked uh, a fairly large group of women who had actually had heart attacks 
So what do you remember the month before? You know, what kind of clues might you have had or your physician have had? Um, and can you think back what happened in the 30 days before your event? And the two most common things were they had sleep disturbance, couldn't sleep well, and they felt unusually fatigued. Now, I actually had to do an interview right after that paper came out. So I took a poll of my book club that night before I had to speak about it. And the book club happened to be all women. And every woman raised their hand when they said, you have trouble sleeping? Oh, yes, I do. You feel tired and fatigued? Oh, yeah, I do. My husband's driving me crazy. My kids, ah, I can't get ahead. So we obviously do need better research when it comes to that. Um, And as far as research in general, besides hypertension trials, um, women represent about 25%, maybe a little bit more, of study participants, and even less so for African Americans and other women of color. And that's not proportional to how we see the disease. So it's been difficult to increase the recruitment of women, um, and we really need to, although there's been a lot of thought about it, uh, we really need to go back and really think about how we can recruit more women from the get-go, because once, of course, a drug or device is released, uh, it's very difficult to go back and say, oops, we didn't have enough women. I think we're getting better as a scientific community in publishing research data by gender and ethnicity. So in the results section of a paper, you'll now see broken out by women and men and various racial and ethnic groups. Oftentimes the statistics get so diluted by that point that we have to make a bit of a guess. We can see a trend. It, that shouldn't be. I mean, it really shouldn't be when you have 430,000 women dying annually of cardiovascular disease. We should really start to have that discussion. And when a drug or device doesn't work as well in men or women, my thinking would be that, you know, we should all go back to the drawing board. Well, how can we build a better mousetrap for women? I can tell you for sure if drug X or drug Y uh, turned out to be great for women and bad for men, we'd have a lot of people going back to the drawing board and say, hey, what, what are we doing wrong here? How can we deliver this medication better? You know, how can we? So we need to do that you know, for everybody because tailored medicine will be very, very important in the future. So it's tough to do a better job treating women if we don't have enough or sufficient numbers or a representative number of women in the research. Yeah. We're often having to take a good guess. Okay. Let's move on to uh, secondary prevention, and this is my mention in the intro of cardiac rehabilitation. Why are utilization rates so low in cardiac rehab, particularly since they're considered a level one or category one recommendation? It's highly effective and, and helpful in many ways. And let's just say, cardi- generally, cardiac rehab means 12. Explain what that actually means. Cardiac rehab is a formal exercise program. It grew out of the concern that, you know, patients after a heart attack are higher risk of having an event when they start to exercise again. So it's a monitored program. Uh, Right now, uh, the requirements are that a physician has to be present on the facility uh, when cardiac rehab is being conducted, which... um, is a big problem in that uh, the physicians are not reimbursed uh, and it has really made it very costly to run uh, cardiac rehab centers. 
Um, oftentimes, it's, it's kind of the last thing that's mentioned to a patient, if it's mentioned at all. We're trying to get better with get with the guidelines. That's one of the parts of it that, you know, you need to talk about that with a patient. Lots of times I find that the doctors don't follow up with that in the first visit. They don't stress the importance. And sometimes it's just hard for them to find a rehab program. We've, we had several here in Washington, D.C. 10 years ago. We have one now because it doesn't, it doesn't cover costs. Uh, I was at a meeting the other day, and one of my colleagues out in the Midwest mentioned that there was expensive co-pays uh, when patients attended this 12-week program that's three days a week. So the, the patient had to pay like $75 uh, a day every, every three days you know, for 12 weeks. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, my goodness, I can go to the best trainer in the world and pay $75, but you know, this is different and it's important. It needs to be covered better. So. One of the helpful pieces of legislation that's being considered right now is that you don't necessarily have to have a physician on staff there. You have well-trained people who know what to do in case of emergencies, care gets delivered. Uh, I, I think that that's most definitely where we need to go, and I think you'd see uh, larger amounts of, of hospitals opening up centers, making it easier for our busy patients to attend. So there's a laundry list of reasons why utilization is so low. There are patient-oriented factors, there are medical factors, health system factors, program availability and characteristics, all of which uh, you mentioned. And per your noting policy, there are um, bills that have been before the Congress for the last few sessions to allow non-physicians, lower licensed uh, clinical professionals to supervise cardiac rehab. Okay, thank you. Let's, let's spend a few minutes on the related issue of stroke. Um, since I mentioned stroke, there are about uh, 800,000 strokes per year, uh, 185,000 of those survive to go on to have another. Um, six out of every 10 deaths due to stroke are in women, although I did in my research note or see that stroke has fallen from, this is the good news, from the third to the fourth leading cause of death. But strokes are more prevalent just like heart disease in the South, more prevalent amongst minorities. What's your current take on sort of status of stroke care? Very, very high rates in African Americans, and really the, the number one cause of disability uh, is surviving a stroke. Um, high blood pressure, which is very prevalent in African Americans, is a big cause. And we also know that um, a large percentage of people with hypertension are kind of unaware that they have it. Uh, and unfortunately, even if a physician and a patient are aware and are starting a treatment, um, about half are not controlled. So we're, you know, this is, this is one of those things that is, uh, it's not uh, flashy, it's not sexy, um, it doesn't involve big equipment, uh, but using the 50 or so drugs that we have available to treat hypertension and being diligent both as patient and physician in that relationship to try to get blood pressure at goal would go a long way in reducing strokes. The same risk factors that give us heart attack gives us strokes. The exception to that would be atrial fibrillation. And with atrial fibrillation, which is very common in women as we age, very common in everybody as we age, there is a little reluctance to put um, some women on anticoagulation for fear of causing more problems than helping because of the bleeding risks, etc. We're, we're getting newer drugs uh, that w are easier to utilize in some respects as far uh, compared to warfarin, which was the traditional drug that required a lot of monitoring with blood. So it's, some, it's getting easier, but there is still this, this concern, and, and it's, it's often very reality-based that women have a higher risk of bleeding. 
Um, I think that there, you know, the, the prevention aspect in reducing strokes is absolutely huge. And uh, oftentimes it's, you know, the, the fear of having a stroke is much more motivating to patients than the fear of having a heart attack. Because everybody kind of says, well, when I'm old, I don't mind having a heart attack in my sleep, and I just go to sleep. Well, heart attacks are often debilitating. They lead to heart failure, rhythm problems. Strokes, however, are very well known uh, to cause de debilitation. So perhaps more motivation for our patients to talk about cardiovascular disease prevention of both heart attacks and strokes. So let me ask you this question about prioritizing what patients should do across, well, combined for both heart disease and stroke. But let me first preface by noting health status, the research shows, is determined largely by personal behavior at about 40%. And medical care, surprisingly, accounts for people estimate about 10 to 15% of one's health status. So having said that, for in order to avoid cardiovascular disease or stroke or the reoccurrence thereof, if you were to prioritize for patients or future patients what they should think about um, to maintain their health relative to these conditions, what I mean, bottom line, this is my bottom line question what should patients or just the general public, what should adults do? So, what should adults think about? Maybe that's the, that's the whole problem, is that we do a lot of thinking about things. And, you know, patients in their best efforts do a lot of talking about things, but it is very hard to translate our thoughts into behavior. Uh, behavioral changes are, are hard to do. Um, you know, we talk to patients every day about losing weight, exercising more, eating more healthy. And there's a few honest patients that will say, you know what? I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not going to do that. It's too important for me to have my French fries or my cigarettes. I'm not ready to do it. And then you know where that patient is. They're not ready to change yet. There are other patients who really want to do it, but it seems absolutely impossible. So, you know, I think that because the problem, by the time an adult reaches a cardiologist's office, they bring in a huge an absolutely huge, I'm not going to say burden, but a, a, a lot of stuff behind them that has led to their being 50 pounds overweight, working 12 hours a day, commuting three hours a day. So the solution um, is motivation, but the solution is also the setting. So I think that there needs to be, obviously, we all know there needs to be more public health changes. Uh, there needs to be re-engineering of how we physically live and work. Uh, one of the things that, for example, that's actually improved uh, smoking cessation is a physical barrier. So uh, the longer distance outside the front door of your building that you're allowed to smoke really causes decrease in smoking. So it's, it's forced behavior. And I think more, you know, obviously more dialogue, you know, person to person. Um, many of us, uh, I won't include myself in it, but some people feel... Uh, it's just lost. You know, what, are, what can we do now? If you can't fix it with a pill or a stent, it's, it's really tough. And we should just focus on the children. I mean, clearly we need to focus on the children. For my women patients, I'll often try to bring in the motivating factor of, you know, they are really example for their family. You know, we all know, as I have four children, we all know uh, it's, it's not what you tell them, it's what you actually do. So 
that is often a motivating factor for women so they can serve as better examples. And we're not aiming for perfection. We're just aiming for some improvement and slow steps towards improvement. But everybody has to be involved in this dialogue. We're paying a very heavy price. You mentioned the price tag for, for all of this. And it's not that it's all preventable, but a lot of it is. Okay, and finally, let me ask. There are, at the federal level, programs uh, recognizing the problem and trying to re- uh, address the problem, reduce the problem. And let's just mention uh, two uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services is running a millions heart, Million Hearts campaign. So let me ask you about that. And then, of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the activities of the American Heart Association. So the Million Hearts campaign is... Uh, you know, came out of a lot of uh, thought, and uh, it really has uh, pushed on levers that I think are very, very important. Uh, they have the ABCs, so it's 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 uh, aspirin, blood pressure, cholesterol, and smoking, and those are four of the more modifiable uh, things that a patient can change on their own with lifestyle changes, and a patient and provider can change also. So the whole purpose of uh, this campaign is to try to, you know, prevent a million heart attacks. And um, my institution, uh, the MedStar Heart Institute, uh, is now starting to incorporate those goals into their hospital patients and to really talk about it in the outpatient setting also, to really get physicians to think about these ABCs. And then there's a public campaign, too, that's obviously uh, getting patients to think about it. And I think we talked about patient engagement uh, recently also. And the more a patient is engaged in their health, the better their quality of health care and the better their health is. Um, patient engagement uh, is, is an empowering thing. And I think that as we start to look more towards how to get those patients who are on the lower end of engagement into the higher end of engagement and empower them to be able to talk to their physician and say, Hi, I want to know how I can prevent heart disease. Um, hopefully we'll also see the needle move too. And as it relates to the, your work with the Heart Association, can you make comment about that? Yeah, the American Heart Association has done a wonderful job with their Go Red campaign. Uh, they've raised awareness in February. They light buildings up red to remind us all that uh, it's February Heart Month. Uh, they do research uh, with respect to women in heart disease. They just published uh, the awareness survey that came out that showed that uh, Unfortunately, African Americans and Hispanic population are still behind in their awareness. Uh, there are many other organizations that have that have worked hard too. Women Heart, the National Coalition for Women of Heart, Women with Heart Disease, is the only grassroots organization that's run by patients and addresses a very important issue that we didn't touch base on. But that's the psychological issue of uh, once you've had heart disease as a woman, uh, you you often feel isolated, and that isolation. Uh, will uh, will kill you in and of itself. So this is an organization that brings women together so they don't feel so alone. Uh, they can talk to each other uh, and they can educate their peer group about what their experience was and how to prevent heart disease. And the name of that organization again? Is Women Heart, women the Heart. National Coalition for Women with Heart Disease. Okay, thank you. And I'll just note, relative to the Million Hearts excuse me, campaign, their website is millionhearts, one word, dot hhs, dot gov. And, of course, the American Heart Association's website is www.heart.org. And the Women Heart website is womenheart.org. Great, thank you. 
And I believe, Susan, we're out of time. So with that, I'll say thank you very much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you.